Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. I have a new respect for my shoulder patients that I see in the emergency department since I broke my humorous mountain biking last summer. That was actually the seed for this podcast. And I also really wanted to have the dynamic duo of Aaron Ciel, the brains behind Casted, and Dale Dancer, upper extremity orthopedic surgeon wizard, back on the show after their stellar performance on the elbow injuries episode. As I started brushing up on this topic of emergency shoulder injuries, I quickly realized that there's a little more to know about the shoulder than anterior shoulder dislocations and the dozens of ways to reduce them. It turns out that we sometimes miss or mismanage shoulder injuries because we're lured into thinking that a normal x-ray means no serious injury. So we're going to dig into the differential diagnosis to think through when you see a normal x-ray in a patient with a shoulder injury. We'll call it the occult shoulder injury. We'll also discuss the nuances of diagnosis and management of the various kinds of shoulder dislocations, proximal humerus fractures, and clavicle fractures. But before we dive in, I'd like to start off by stepping back a bit, take a, a broader perspective, if you will, and ask Dr. Cial, in general, why do we miss orthopedic injuries so often? Well, you're, you're absolutely right, Anton. Uh, it is commonly missed in eMERGE. Probably the most common thing that we miss in eMERGE diagnostically would be orthopedic injuries. And I think the biggest issue is we over-rely on the x-ray and we underperform when it comes to the common things like history and physical. So we let the x-ray do way more work than it's capable of doing. So we don't do that for anything else. Um, we take x-ray normal to be a diagnosis, meaning some soft tissue injury, and that's probably the biggest issue. So short-changing the history, not understanding age-related prevalence, the patient to whom the injury occurred, not examining patients. These are big pitfalls orthopedically. Often these patients are in the fast track or the ambulatory area. We want to be kind of fast and keep our numbers up, and that leads to shortcuts. Then we take an x-ray and we may not be the right x-ray or we didn't look at it properly or we looked at one view and we didn't use the x-ray tool as, as best as we could. So there's a, there's a few links in the chain that can be broken sometimes that allow us to, to miss a diagnosis orthopedically. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, often we end up rushing through the history and the physical. Uh, we don't necessarily consider a wide differential diagnosis and someone, you know, with an orthopedic injury and then we might not order x-rays at all. We might order the wrong x-rays. We might not order the right views. Um, and then we might not spend the time that we should interpreting those x-rays. Let's drill down into sort of each of those reasons why we miss orthopedic injuries a little bit more. So we'll start with the glossing over the history and physical. Tell us a little bit more about how we should approach in general the patient with an orthopedic injury or suspected orthopedic injury in terms of the history and physical. Well, so if somebody has, let's say, shoulder pain, since we're talking about shoulders, it's nice to know if there is an injury or not. If that's the the onset of the symptoms are related to the fall, uh, make sure it's not a medical fall and it's a mechanical fall for the reason that they went down. So in a bigger picture, that's an important thing to realize that they didn't have syncope or some arrhythmia that caused them to fall or a seizure. Once you say, okay, it's a traumatic injury that's caused it, you want to know a few things. You want to know the forces that were involved. If it's a young person, did they fall from two feet off a ladder or 12 feet off a ladder? What was the mechanism of injury? What was the position their arm was in? If somebody gets, you know, hurts their shoulder in hockey, 
because uh, they got hit in the boards, if their arm was down by their side, which is more typical, that's more common with, let's say, a clavicle fracture and AC separation. But if their arm happened to be up along the boards and they got hit from behind, then you're thinking more perhaps a subluxation or a dislocation of the shoulder. Um, so these sorts of things about the positioning, again, it doesn't take long to ask those questions, but it's important. And then what happened afterwards, the events after the injury? You know, I, I injured my shoulder, but I kept playing for a couple more periods, and the next day my shoulder was sore. Well, the likelihood of a significant fracture is way less in a situation like that. So these little details are sometimes helpful to, to dig down. Ask about if the patient had previous injuries to that shoulder or not, or the opposite one. You're going to compare to the opposite side. Uh, you'll sometimes be fooled because it's a young patient looks otherwise well, and you don't find out that they have like Crohn's disease and they're on some immunosuppressant and their shoulder pain, their atraumatic shoulder pain, maybe it's a septic joint. But again, a little few small things in their, in their past medical history are helpful. And then the whole classic look, feel, move of actually examining patients and looking at them. You know, they're wearing jackets, extras are taken through the jackets. We sometimes don't even take the jacket off. We just say they have a soft tissue injury. Everything hurts. Why should we touch them? And we shortchange our ability to, to be able to affect our pretest probability by just doing a, a rather simple assessment. And we don't do that for abdominal pain. We don't do it for headache. We don't do it for chest pain. So I, I tell people all the time that we treat ortho patients differently. That's why we miss them. We put a different, we use a different path to making a diagnosis that we don't do for anything else. Ortho doesn't treat ortho differently. Ortho does a history and a physical and then brings the test in. And we start with the test. And I think it's part of the reason we miss so many. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. On that line of thinking, we tend to also, I find, not to really entertain a wide differential diagnosis. You know, someone has a fall and either they've got a break or a soft tissue injury and that's it. Right. You had mentioned septic arthritis as an example of, of something that, you know, we really shouldn't miss in someone who comes in with, say, shoulder pain. What else is generally on your differential, just to have at the back of your mind, for patients who come in with a joint pain, say shoulder pain? So with a normal x-ray, I've, I've got this mnemonic. It's kind of a, a silly mnemonic, but I say, look, if it's a normal ECG, we're not scared of a normal ECG and you shouldn't be scared of a normal x-ray. So scared of is the mnemonic. So S is septic, C is compartment syndrome, A is abuse. Uh, the x-ray may not be normal, but if we don't pick up abuse, the chances are that that patient will come back with a more significant injury uh, as a result of abuse. Uh, RE has two letters, so it's got two pieces. One is referred pain from a more proximal uh, source. The second is the report is false, meaning if the radiologist has read it, uh, there's a significant chance radiology may miss it. And we as generalists tend to undermine our ability to read a film and, and amplify the radiologist's view. But if we do a history, we do a physical, and we look at films, sometimes we're a bit better than the radiologists. And we need to keep that in mind. So read the report if it's there, but look at the films as well. It's super important. So that's scare. And then the D is a dislocation or subluxation that's spontaneously reduced. And then the of, O is an operative soft tissue injury. Uh, so let's say if it's a knee injury, a quads rupture, let's say, or something. And F is an occult fracture. You can just stop the podcast right there. <laughs> well, what a great, mnemonic. Thank you. Well, yeah, thank what you a great much. mnemonic. We'll definitely have that in the show notes. Excellent. We've talked a little bit about why we generally miss orthopedic injuries, and that's a fantastic mnemonic. I want to talk a little bit more about x-rays in particular. You had mentioned, you know, sometimes we just look at the x-ray without doing a history and physical. What else particularly about ordering x-rays should we just be aware of so as to minimize missing injuries? So I'd say in a general sense, a couple of things. One is we, we tend to sometimes order x-rays that are a little too um, panoramic. 
So if they've really just injured their wrist, order a wrist x-ray. Don't order a forearm so you get a little like a, a little peek at the elbow as well. There's an issue called the central ray. That's where the, the x-ray tech focus, like centers the image that they're taking. You want the injured area to be very close to that central ray. Don't order a wrist hand if you just want a wrist. Don't order a hand if you just want a finger. So try to be focused on what you want, number one. Number two, make sure you get two views at 90 degrees. That's super important. Um, you can't tell anything about displacement, about positioning on a single view alone. So one view is acceptable for a chest x-ray. One view is not acceptable orthopedically. There are main views that we use, which are the lateral views, but the other views have value as well. Um, just like for a C-spine, the lateral view is the main view, but you've still got to look at the AP. You have to look at the odontoid. They have value. Appreciate the value of the others. And if you see a fracture on one view, go try to find it every other view. A, it'll tell you about positioning, but B, you may realize, oh, look, I see it on all three views. And then the next time you see, you suspect a patient has that fracture, you'll actually look at all three views and you may only find it on the one that's like the least like the lateral view of the foot. You see a base of the fifth metatarsal fracture, but you may not see it on the other two views. But if you're only used to looking at the one view for it and you don't find it on the others, it's another reason we don't find it, have the opportunity to pick, make that diagnosis. So it's really important to try to look at all the views and try to get a 360 degree view of the fracture. Fantastic. I mean, the reason why I'm asking all these very general questions is because so often in cases that we do miss, it just ends up being about these very general principles that are so important that we sometimes forget. Dr. Dancer, from your perspective, when you see patients in follow-up, uh, is there anything in general about x-rays that you think eMERGE docs should know about? Try not to make clinical decisions on the basis of non-standard views. So if you want a wrist you need a good AP, you need a good lateral. You don't always get it. Don't accept lousy film. Send that patient back to get it repeated. It's amazing how good the repeat x-rays are. Usually the x-ray that comes back is dramatically superior. So adequate views are of utmost importance. And from an emergency medicine perspective, most of us know what adequate elbow views are. But when it comes to the shoulder, I think probably few of us know what an adequate shoulder view is for x-rays. So Dr. Dancer, could you just go over for us um, as best you can for a podcast, and we'll have some pictures on the show notes, what defines an adequate view for the various shoulder, standard shoulder x-rays? It's not really that easy to, to mess up uh, an AP of the shoulder. On the transcapular lateral, that should be done in the plane of the scapula. So the entire body of the scapula should just line up straight up and down on a terrific lateral. If it isn't, the danger here is that uh, you can be fooled into thinking what's in joint is out of joint and vice versa. So again, try not to accept a poor x-ray. So the trick being, as, as Dale's saying, is actually what you need to do on the transcapular view is you need to digitally in your mind, subtract the ribs, subtract the clavicle, subtract the humerus, and just be able to draw a line around the profile of the scapula. And that should be a very narrow profile of the body of the scapula on that view. And if you can see a lot of the body, then that's actually a poorly shot. And, and depending on how it is, it can make the head look out the front. And I know in our hospital of three cases, three separate doctors who pulled on somebody's arm and almost dislocated it. It wasn't out. It just looked like it was out because a poorly shot transcapular view. So there, there are certainly 
pitfalls and looking at a, a transcapular but not appreciating that it's poorly shot. So you need to actually just only look at the, the body of the scapula to make sure it's narrow. It's like looking at the side of your hand in profile. If you turn your hand and rotate a little bit, you can start to see all of your fingers and, and the back of your hand quite easily. But when you're in a side profile, all you're looking down is really your thumb and the edge of your index finger. And that's what you should be looking at when you look at a scapula. If it's shot properly, you're just looking at the side of the scapula. You're not getting any of that front and back. Okay. Hopefully all the listeners are taking their hand and looking at it in profile so they know what you mean. <laughs> Unless they're driving, do yeah. not put your if hand in profile. If the kids are nearby, they're going to be afraid you're going to get hit. <laughs> I'm not all right. who, but somebody's going to get it. Okay. All right. Let's review what we've heard so far. Orthopedic injuries are all too often missed because of the following reasons. First is rushing through the history and physical. Then there's not considering a wide differential diagnosis. There's not ordering x-rays in the first place. There's misinterpretation of x-rays. There's inadequate or improper views obtained. There's not ordering the most specific view for the injury. For example, ordering a hand x-ray when only one finger is injured. There's the presence of occult fractures. And one thing we didn't mention, the presence of multiple fractures. Remember, it's the second fracture that's often missed. A great mnemonic for the differential diagnosis of an orthopedic emergency with a normal x-ray is scared of. The S for septic arthritis, C for compartment syndrome, A for abuse, and then there's two R's. The first one being radiology false, so radiology misread the x-ray. The second being referred pain. So remember, there's always looking at the joint above and below. And then the D is for dislocation or subluxation that has reduced. The classic one being the knee dislocation that's reduced that can be very serious. Listen to our knee podcast for details on that one. Then there's of, and the O is for operative soft tissue injury. And the F is for fracture occult or occult fracture. So when it comes to adequate x-ray views of the shoulder, you really need to make sure that they are adequate. If they're not, send the patient back. So what's an adequate shoulder view? Well, as far as the AP goes, that's kind of hard to mess up. So even if it's off axis a bit, that's usually acceptable. It's the lateral transcapular view that can steer us wrong. So... So what's an adequate lateral transcapular view? An adequate view is defined by the scapula appearing completely in profile as one straight thin line so that none of the body is visible behind it. If you can see the body of the scapula, it's an inadequate film and you should send the patient back for an adequate one. All right, next up, Dr. Dancer is going to tell us a bit about three aspects of shoulder mechanics that affect the prognosis and approach to the patient with an injured shoulder. Let's talk a little bit about shoulder anatomy and mechanics. We're not going to get too deep into this, but I think there's some things that we need to understand before we get into the particular injuries. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the important aspects of shoulder anatomy and mechanics that we need to know about to help us evaluate and manage these patients in the ED? I think it's all about the rotator cuff. There are a set of tendons in the shoulder that's fairly unique to that joint. And there really isn't another joint in the body where we have that kind of extra layer of complexity like with the rotator cuff. And it affects just about every injury that you treat in the shoulder. 
one of the consequences is, I mean, the rotator cuff is sensitive either to injury or inflammation under the best of circumstances. Throw it in the, in the context of an injury and you're a sitting duck to develop issues with your rotator cuff. And in my opinion, most patients who have to recover from a shoulder injury do have to recover through a phase where their rotator cuff is going to complain and is going to be what requires treatment. And that's where, you know, a good physiotherapist can be helpful during that phase. The other thing about the shoulder is how prone to stiffness that it is. Uh, And in this way, it's somewhat similar to the elbow. And I think we spoke during the elbow podcast that, you know, there, there aren't too many circumstances where you want to immobilize the elbow longer than three weeks. That's true of the shoulder as well. And that influences our decision-making in a lot of different ways. So sometimes decisions about surgery would be in order to facilitate getting a shoulder moving within a three-week time frame to avoid the stiffness issue. Another issue with the shoulder is that it can dislocate a fair bit more easily than a lot of the other joints in the body. And, you know, we were just talking about how it's prone to stiffness, which in my opinion, these are the opposite ends of the same spectrum. So instability is too loose and stiffness is too tight. And when it comes to treatment, we can actually use these factors to our advantage. And so I believe later on, we're going to talk about dislocations and uh, I'll touch on how we can actually deliberately provoke a little bit of stiffness in the shoulder in order to help the outcome. Interesting. Okay. So there's kind of three aspects of anatomy and mechanics of the shoulder that we should just kind of be aware of. One is that the rotator cuff is this very particular set of muscles that can uh, really get irritated easily, be injured easily, and will end up coming into play in terms of their recovery quite a bit. The second is um, that the shoulder does tend to get very stiff very easily, and this will come into play in terms of how long they should be immobilized for. And then the third thing is the uh, instability of the shoulder. It's probably the most unstable joint in the whole body, and that's why it's uh, it's prone to dislocation and subluxation. And interestingly, that instability and stiffness as opposite ends of the spectrum um, are something to think about when it comes to treatment later down the road. So Dr. Seal, you had mentioned a little bit about having kind of a systematic approach to the physical exam, and sometimes we gloss over it, and that's why we miss stuff. Let's talk a little bit more specifically about the physical exam for the shoulder. I mean, of course, you know, we want to look at alignment and swelling compared to the opposite side. We want to find the point of maximal tenderness. We want to palpate the compartments if if the pain is anywhere near the compartments. Um, We want to do a proper assessment of both active and passive range of motion, as well as the distal neurovascular status. And the neurovascular status is something that everyone has kind of a different approach to. They either skip it or it's, we're not really sure what we're looking for exactly on the neurological exam in particular. What's your recommended quick neurovascular exam for patients with shoulder injuries? So like with uh, most things neurologic, really you want to test the motor and sensation at the most distal part of the nerves in question. So it's really easy and quick to do a screening neuro exam in the hand and you've covered three nerves there right away. For me, I get them to make a fist, shoot a gun with the thumb up, okay sign, and then I spread the fingers wide. 
I always stop with spreading the fingers wide because, uh, and I ask them to do it on both sides because now their fingers are ready to be tested for sensation. And so I'm going to touch the most distal lateral aspect of the fifth finger, which is unique to the ulnar nerve, the most distal radial aspect of the second finger, which is unique to the median nerve, and the uh, first dorsal web space. And now if, you know, if they find that it's symmetrical and, and declare it as normal, I can move on and I'm not worried about those three nerves. Now we're talking about the shoulder in today's podcast. And so, you know, you want to add a couple of things. The sensation in the military patch area is the axillary nerve. You do need to feel twitch in the deltoid to confirm that there's motor movement, which isn't always easy when they're very painful. I also find it useful to get all of these motor movements to be done in both hands simultaneously. And, you know, a lot of the patients we deal with, uh, they don't speak English or their English is limited and you can't always be sure that they understand your question. So you may ask them to give you the okay sign in one hand and if they don't do it, you don't know uh, whether that's a problem. But if they're doing it perfectly well in the opposite hand and not in the hand in question, well, now you have an issue. Great. I love that approach. I especially like the the pearl about doing the spreading of the fingers as you're last motor testing for the hand and that starts you right into your sensation testing that that's a nice time saver one of the neurologic injuries that can happen with shoulder injuries thankfully not too often are brachial plexus injuries which can be devastating for the patient can you give us uh, some tips and tricks on how we would detect a brachial plexus injury when it comes to doing the neurologic exam so most of your listeners are likely to be physicians and they're probably all having flashbacks right now because their first year anatomy course, the study of the brachial plexus is, you know, extremely challenging. But you'll remember that uh, the peripheral nerves are crossovers from the various, you know, cords and trunks of the, of the brachial plexus. And so if you have a higher injury and you have an injury, say, to the posterior cord of the brachial plexus, that's going to look like a mixed injury in the, in the hand. So if you have a deficit distally, you know, often in the hand, and it doesn't follow one of the typical patterns, you know, radial, median, ulnar nerve, you have to start thinking of a more proximal injury. Great. I love that. Nice, simple approach. Because yeah, missing a brachial plexus injury is, uh, is also has pretty serious consequences as well. I want to talk a little bit more about x-rays. So we've talked about x-rays in general. We've talked about what an adequate shoulder x-ray is. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit more about particular views, the standard views, plus any extra views that might come in handy in the emergency department. So Dr. Cial, can you just tell us a little bit about when we should be ordering just standard views, what extra views might be helpful in different situations when it comes to shoulder injuries? Sure. So the standard views we get are AP internal rotation and AP view with external rotation and the transcapular Y view. So we touched on what's a good transcapular Y view. You can sometimes be fooled. If you're ever in doubt and you're worried if the, the, the humerus is really sitting where it should be, a better view to get is called an axillary view if you can get it. So typically the way it needs to be shot, the elbow gets abducted and then the beam gets shot. And it's almost, it's almost shot like top to bottom or bottom to top, there's different ways that they do it. And you'll see a, a very nice view of the humeral head relative to the glenoid. 
And if you've never actually looked, seen one of these used before, it can be quite confusing. You can Google and see what normal looks like, but there's many different faces, like very different ways that the axillary view can be shot. So I think until you get comfortable with what it's supposed to look like, a really good idea if you're ever going to do an axillary view is to x-ray both sides from an axillary point of view, because then what happens is you see the text going to do it the same way, and you'll see what normal is for the patient, and it'll identify the abnormality easier. That's a great pearl. I mean, I order an axillary view maybe three, four, five times a year. In those patients where I'm not sure if there's a dislocation or subluxation or not. See, that's great because I'll tell you my first 12 years of full-time eMERGE, I never once ordered an axillary view. And if you know the value of the use of it, like when it's indicated, if you're really worried about whether it's positioned from an eMERGE point of view, we just want to know it's in the right position as opposed to really dislocated is really the most subtle one. The anterior ones are fairly obvious. This is really an extra view for posterior dislocations. It's not often done routinely because it, it usually means we have to move the, the tech has to move the arm. They don't like doing that. There's a proximal humerus fracture. There are other versions of it called a modified axillary view or a Valpo view, which again, you can just like search it and see how it's done. And then you can show that to the x-ray tech if they're not familiar of how to do it. But essentially the patient just leans back and they try to shoot down and then the, the plate is sitting on a, on a table where your, your shoulder's leaning back over top of the table. So uh, there are other ways of doing it. But again, if you're just not sure that it's in the right place and what that stems from actually is a history and a physical that makes you worried and not an x-ray. That, sometimes it's the x-ray that makes you concerned. But sometimes if the history and physical makes you worried, just add it as another tool in your toolbox. Great. All right. So that's a little bit about the axillary view, which is, yeah, my go-to view when I'm not sure or when the history and physical isn't fitting with the x-ray that I see in front of me. Um, there's also the serendipity view and the Zanka view. Dr. Dancer, can you tell us a little bit about these two views and when we might need them? So, you know, the, the common thread here with these two views is you're just trying to get all the other stuff out of the way. So, for instance, with the serendipity view, if you just take an AP of, say, the sternoclavicular joint, you've got ribs, you've got spinous processes, you've got, you've got a lot of stuff that just obscures the view. By shooting from an inferior angle, most of that stuff is rotated out of the way and you get a better look. The Zanker view is the opposite. So if you just take an AP of the AC joint, you have the chromion and the spine of the scapula in the way. By shooting from the top down, you get some of that out of the way. All right, great. So the serendipity view is the one that you want to add in for patients that you think might have a medial clavicle fracture or a sternoclavicular injury. And the Zanka view is the one that might help out when it comes to the AC joint. All right, another quick review. First, shoulder mechanics. The three aspects of shoulder mechanics we should be aware of are first, that the rotator cuff is a unique set of muscles and tendons that tends to get injured along with many other shoulder injuries and contributes to the sometimes very prolonged recovery for some patients compared to other joints in the body. Next, the shoulder gets really stiff with immobilization of more than two to three weeks. And so for most fractures, Early mobilization is important to avoid frozen shoulder and chronic stiffness. Third, on the other end of the spectrum, the shoulder is the most unstable joint in the body and so is prone to dislocation and subluxation. And so for the glenohumeral dislocation, keeping patients immobilized for up to three weeks is advised to take advantage of the stiffness that happens. When it comes to the physical exam, don't cut corners and especially for the neuro exam, 
just make it a routine to do a neuro exam on every patient with a shoulder injury so you don't miss anything. The neuro exam involves starting distally at the hand and then moving proximally for the axillary nerve. So for the hand, motor, it's easy. Just ask the patient to make a fist with both hands, shoot guns with both hands with the thumbs up, then spread all the fingers. Then they're all ready for doing the sensation, which is the ulnar tip of the pinky, the radial tip of the index, and the first web space. Then you want to move up to the axillary nerve and test sensation in the military patch over the deltoid there. And for power, feel for the muscle twitch of the deltoid. If you find a neurodeficit that doesn't make sense or is a mix of what we've reviewed so far, think brachial plexus injury. Now, when it comes to x-ray views of the shoulder, the standard three views are the AP internal rotation, the AP external rotation, and the lateral transcapular view. Now, on the lateral transcapular view, the scapula looks like a Y with the humeral head in the middle of it, the classic Mercedes-Benz sign. But again, ensure that the scapula appears as a single straight line so that you cannot visualize the body of the scapula. That's what ensures an adequate film. And when you're faced with a patient who's injured their shoulder and has an apparently normal x-ray, your go-to additional view is the axillary view for posterior dislocations and subtle glenohumeral fractures. Other additional views to consider are the serendipity view and the Zanka view. So the serendipity view, which is the 40 degrees cephalic tilt, that's for suspected medial clavicle fractures and sternoclavicular joint injuries. Then there's the Zanka view, and that's for suspected distal clavicle and AC joint injuries. All right, let's move on. So now that we have a solid understanding of the differential of shoulder pain, shoulder mechanics, why we miss injuries on x-rays, and some of the special x-ray views that we might consider for shoulder x-rays, let's jump into a case. A 35-year-old man comes in with his friend from a house party where he drank excessively. According to his friend who's sober, they were horsing around in front of the house. He tripped and he fell awkwardly on his arm on the pavement. He's been holding his arm against his body ever since and refusing to move it. He says he has pain in the shoulder. He's tender around the entire shoulder. He's difficult to examine because he's really drunk and you can't really get him to move his shoulder at all. You send him for three views of the shoulder and you don't see a fracture. So Dr. CL, what does this case kind of smell of in terms of misdiagnoses? <laughs> well, so a couple of things I'll tell you. First off, you know, again, thinking life-threatening, limb-threatening, and then the injury, just make sure the guy doesn't have a neck injury, head injury, spleen, liver, something else, a rib, obviously that sort of stuff. So clearly we're focusing on his shoulder here. Um, one of the things I used to think of for years, you know, we all think of the three E's with the posterior shoulder dislocation, that it's associated with ep epilepsy, ethanol, and electric shock. And for the longest time, I thought, you know, oh, epilepsy, well, I guess you must fall when you seize, and ethanol, well, you fall when you're drunk, and electric shock, you get tossed against a wall or something. And I was wrong. And the reason all these three E's are related, it's actually just a tonic-clonic contracture. And when you have a tug of war, your internal rotators are stronger than your external rotators, and you get a posterior dislocated shoulder. So for all three of these, and that's, if it's a board, like a board review exam question, they're going to ask you about the three E's. But the most common mechanism is actually some sort of trauma, like a fall, like an awkward fall. So that's the more likely. 
the one review that I saw, 67% were actually from trauma, from a traumatic fall, and the, the remainder, most of the remainder were from a seizure. So the, the board review question makes us think of the three E's. If they're not there, that's one of the reasons we miss a posterior shoulder dislocation. It can happen just from a fall. All right. So knowing that a fall is actually the most common mechanism, could you just review for us a little bit about what that mechanism is exactly? So we had mentioned this was an awkward fall on the arm. What exactly is happening in a posterior shoulder dislocation when, when it's a fall? So we're all familiar with an anterior dislocation. The the danger position is uh, ABER, abducted external rotation, and that's uh, often the most provocative, although you know there it, it can happen with pure forward flexion and other positions. But the, the danger position for a, a posterior dislocation is forward flexion and internal rotation. So a variant of that is what can provoke a posterior dislocation. So just to clarify there, the mechanism for a posterior shoulder dislocation is an awkward fall on the shoulder that's internally rotated. So just try and imagine that for a minute as we go on and talk more about posterior shoulder dislocations. All right, so that's a little bit about the mechanism. Now, of course, posterior dislocations aren't anywhere near as common as anterior dislocations. That's one of the reasons we miss them. But what are some of the key clinical clues to actually diagnosing these posterior shoulder dislocations and, and why do we miss them so often? Right. So I, I think the phrase I first heard was from you, this cognitive forcing strategy, that when you see somebody with a shoulder injury, just ask yourself, could it be posterior? Could it be? Just force yourself to think about it. So a couple of things. Their arm is locked in internal rotation. So we actually need to move them and try to actually even passively externally rotate and see if you can get them to do that. And if their arm is locked in internal rotation, that would be one of the clues, but typically we don't move patients, which is a concern. The other thing is that an anterior is pretty obvious clinically. And even though it's a posterior dislocation, many times it's actually a posterior subluxation. So it's actually far more subtle in terms of where the humeral head is relative to the acromion. So it's not, you know, when it's anterior, it's squared off, it's obvious, like you can see it from the other side of the room. Posteriors usually are far more subtle in how how much they're out the back. There are a lot of structures in the back of the shoulder that stop the head from flying out the back the way this shoulder can fly out the front. So it's another reason why it's commonly missed. What we'll also do in eMERGE is we'll look, we'll feel, it will hurt. We don't want to move them because there could be a fracture. So we send them for x-ray. And then when the x-ray comes back, we actually forget to move them. So we never actually do. So it's another reason. Sometimes if we should just be, be cognizant of the fact that if you see a patient emerge and you're holding back on moving them because you want the x-ray done first, that's fine. Just put in your back pocket that you still have to complete the physical exam if the x-ray comes back as negative. Yeah, great. So the big clinical clue is a complete absence of external rotation. Like they are holding their forearm right against their body and no matter how hard you try, they won't yeah. externally rotate. It's actually locked there. One thing that you had taught me in the past actually was one of the clues is when you send them for x-ray and they can't do the external rotation view at x-ray because the patient literally can't externally rotate. Right. So the excellent x-ray tech will write back patient unable to actually rotate, but some x-ray techs will take a couple of shots and they'll kind of wiggle it and jiggle it and make it look like an external rotation view, but the arm never really moved. And you'll see two views and you'll think that's what it is. On the x-ray, you can sometimes see something called a light bulb sign. So normally on an AP view, you should see a greater tuberosity, a lesser tuberosity, a little almond, a little peanut that kind of show an asymmetric appearance. 
But if it's a posterior dislocation, it, the head rotates posteriorly and it has a more symmetric appearance. Looks like a light bulb. Uh, my feeling is that's rarely picked up going forward. Like you don't see an emerging go, oh, that's a positive light bulb. But if somebody says, oh, there's a missed posterior dislocation, then retrospectively we go, oh, damn, there was a posterior, there was a light bulb sign. Yeah, it's like we often miss it. Like a Westermark sign for PE. Right. We never pick those up at the beginning. It's always after the PE is diagnosed. Great point. I have kind of an opinion on why there's such a big difference in the appearance of an anterior dislocation versus a posterior dislocation. In the normal anatomy of the shoulder, everyone has almost like a little hill sacs lesion in the back of their humeral head. So the insertion of the posterior tissues on your humerus is lateralized. And there's a little, what we call a bare area back there that we see at time of arthroscopy every time. And you don't have that in the front. So the subscapularis is a very thick tendon and it attaches to the lesser tuberosity. So you can have it out the front and there's a lot of room in the back. And that's why the, the ball can really medialize. But the subscapularis would rarely be torn with a, a posterior dislocation. So it's it's kind of sandwiched in between the glenoid and the humeral head. So if you ever see that it looks like there's a little too much space in between the glenoid and the humeral head, you have to think posterior dislocation. You know, with an anterior dislocation, it's like jumping off the page that there's a major overlap that shouldn't be there. With a posterior dislocation, it's often almost the opposite. It's spaced. That's a great one. So in terms of subtle things you're looking for on the x-ray, there's the light bulb sign, which we'll have some pictures of. Which is which is the humeral head pointed directly away from the plane of the x-ray. Yeah. And then there's that space that you had just mentioned, Dr. Dancer. There's also the reverse hill sacs deformity, right? Could you just go over for us what that looks like on x-ray? So yeah. I think that'll be hard to pick up on a, on, a, on the standard views. You might you you'll see that better on an axillary view, but a typical hill sacs is the is the posterolateral corner of the humeral head. When the, the the humeral head goes out for an anterior shoulder dislocation, the posterolateral dings against the glenoid as if it were a ping pong ball just getting punched in, like d- dented in. And when it goes out posteriorly, it's the anteromedial corner that gets punched in. But I, I haven't seen very many posterior shoulder dislocations. I really should probably defer to you, Dale, on this one. But I don't know if you can see it on the regular views. I don't think you can. And I think that, in fact, the reverse hill sacs is often much smaller, very difficult to see on standard x-rays. Okay. Well, that's good to know. So really the important thing here is getting a good physical exam and looking for that that block of external rotation. When you get an x-ray back and it looks pretty much normal – to then send them back for an axillary view because you'll be able to see the dislocation a lot easier on the axillary view and consider doing bilateral axillary views as well. And then probably you'll diagnose it on that view and then go back to the usual view and say, oh yeah, there's a light bulb sign there. Now, all this said about posterior dislocations, Dr. Dancer, why is it important for us to pick up posterior dislocations early on in the first visit? I mean, these are missed all the time. And on the one hand, you could think, oh, well, it's been out of the joint until they get seen next in a week or two. Is that a big deal? Like, why is it important to pick these up early on in the first visit? 
any dislocation that's left longer than, say, 24 hours starts to become not just harder to, to reduce, but it's uh, not healthy for the joint, potentially adds to the pathology. The literature would say that probably between 15 and 80% of posterior shoulder dislocations are missed by the first doctor who sees it. So it's a, it's a high number. So it's uncommon, but uncommon injuries are commonly missed. Wow. I've had the opportunity to review multiple cases. And in fact, radiology often misses this as well. And you can't rely on radiology to make the diagnosis. So again, make sure you look at the films. Make sure you have good laterals. And if there's any doubt, get an axillary review. If you're not sure it looks like, check the opposite side. Great. So now we've made the diagnosis of the posterior dislocation, let's say. We're all pretty familiar with the various techniques of reduction for anterior shoulder dislocations. But what about posterior dislocations? How do you suggest that we reduce them in the ED? So I think we're all familiar with the Cunningham technique. If you actually look at Neil Cunningham's website, he talks about using the same Cunningham technique for actual posterior dislocations. That's one thing to keep in your back pocket. All right. So one option is doing the Cunningham technique. So the, the other way that I've seen, that I've actually done twice, is the patient's mostly sitting upright. You're putting longitudinal traction along the, the long axis of the humerus through a flexed elbow. So the elbow is flexed. You're on the, the proximal forearm tractioning down. And then one person is gently externally rotating. And then I would be behind the patient with my, my thumb basically on their humeral head, my other hand kind of on their, their distal end of their clavicle, and just trying to gently see if I can bring the humerus, the humeral head around into the front. So it's traction, external rotation by one person. And then the second person is trying to manipulate the humeral head in. Okay. So it's similar to actually to an anterior dislocation, except that you're pushing anteriorly from the back of the patient. You're adding that little right. push. All right. Great. A, a comment that I would make is that the humeral head is kind of like half a sphere, but past the equator, it kind of is concave a little bit versus the glenoid. The glenoid is kind of shaped like a golf tee and these hinge on each other. So they kind of lock, right? So the principle of reducing it is to try to unlock that. If you're in a situation where you're trying to reduce a shoulder and you're by yourself and you don't have help, the technique that you describe would be difficult. Right. Yeah. It's a two-person um, technique. Yeah. So if you need to manipulate the arm, either with rotation or, or traction, you're, you're down to one hand now. You've got one hand on the, probably the proximal forearm to, to work on the shoulder position. The, the second hand, how are you going to use it? My preference is to form your hand into a fist, abduct the arm a little bit, place that fist horizontally up into the axilla, and then gently adduct the arm back toward the side that makes your fist a fulcrum. And now you've got a laterally directed force. It's actually fairly powerful. You can even try to manipulate it so that the locked part of the dislocation becomes unlocked and then you can hopefully reduce it. I've had an opportunity to do it a couple times in anterior dislocations playing hockey, but this is how I would typically do it in an asleep patient in the operating room and it works. Right. So you've got a couple of choices for the reduction of a posterior shoulder dislocation. You can try the Cunningham. You can try doing what you would normally do with an anterior dislocation, and that's applying axial traction downward in the sitting patient, the bit of external rotation, 
and have a second person pushing the humeral head from the back of the patient. And the other technique is placing your fist in the patient's axilla and using that uh, as a lever so that you can get some lateral force to the humerus while you manipulate it in. There's one more technique for reducing posterior shoulder dislocations that's described in the literature that we'll have in the show notes. Next, we're going to talk about how to immobilize patients who have had their posterior shoulder dislocation reduced. We've now reduced our posterior dislocation. How do you actually immobilize these patients with posterior shoulder dislocations that you've reduced in the ED? Do you just throw them in this in a sling, shoulder immobilizer? Is there a special position that you need them in so that they don't go back out? I think the mistake here is to just throw them in a standard sling because internal rotation is actually the vulnerable position and, and that's where it may just come back out again. So no matter which way you immobilize them, trying to build some external rotation into the immobilization is helpful. I know we have an off-the-shelf sling with a pillow that we have in the operating room. On occasion, if I'm participating in the care of a posterior dislocation, I'll invite the uh, emergency staff to to come and get that. Aaron, what do you would what would you typically use? You need to construct something that keeps the forearm externally rotated. So it's normally sitting in towards you easily. Uh, what you want to do is have just something that fills the space. So that's what those commercial devices would do. And if you don't have them, you could just take an ABD pad uh, that's rolled up, perhaps add another one to it. Uh, if you put that against the patient's side, you want some degree of external rotation. And to hold that whole thing together, you may put it in stocking yet, tape it down just to hold it out. And then you've got to f- fix that somehow to the patient so they can externally rotate. So what you want is just when they're when they're when their arm is forward, when they're walking forward, they have about 10, 15 degrees of external rotation and try to encourage them to keep it that way. The bottom line being though is don't put them in a regular Velpo or shoulder mobilizer where they're over in an internal rotation where their where their forearm is against their belly. They need to be in external rotation. Well, that's just about everything you need to know about posterior dislocations. The rare inferior dislocation is a lot more obvious because the patient comes in with their arms stuck above their head. So we're not going to talk about that too much. Let's move on to the very popular anterior shoulder dislocation. In fact, the most common dislocation that we see in emergency medicine. Now, I'm going to assume that our listeners have a basic understanding of anterior shoulder dislocations, the mechanism of a posterior force against an abducted and extended arm, the squared off shoulder on exam, patient holding their arm in kind of slight abduction, checking the axillary nerve over the deltoid muscle, etc. Let's get into some of the nuances and pitfalls of this diagnosis. So, what are some of the major pitfalls in diagnosis and treatment of anterior shoulder dislocations? One thing I tell you to be real careful about is sometimes a nursing home sends a patient in with an anterior shoulder dislocation. If it's been out for a long time, don't be trying to put that one back in. So it can be a little tricky sometimes. Demented patients are not using their arms and somebody just noticed at some point that it was out, took an x-ray and it's out. So just make sure it's acute that you want to deal with. If, if they've been in your institution before, it's a good trick to just scan through the previous 
chest x-rays, sometimes a CT chest. And you may find that, you know, three or four months before, clearly the shoulder was out then. And that absolutely changes management and the priority of the issue. All right. Yeah. The last thing you want to do is, you know, take an 87-year-old with 16 different medical problems and sedate them and be pulling on their shoulder for forever and then not be able to get it back in and then try again and again. And you could cause all kinds of soft tissue injury. And, and there's even case mess. reports of like a, a, the axillary artery being adhered to by the humeral head and the reduction actually tears the artery. These chronic dislocations, you got to be very careful from an emerge perspective of doing anything with. All right. So first pitfall is attempting to reduce a chronic yes. dislocation. Right. So first of all, you have to make sure it's acute. Any other pitfalls? I would be hesitant trying to reduce a surgical neck fracture in conjunction with an anterior dislocation in the emergency department. And the reason is that you need as much relaxation as you can because you want to be very, very gentle with that reduction in order to not displace the fracture. And you probably can't achieve that level of relaxation in the emergency department, even with fairly deep sedation. So that's one that I would hold back off on and then get orthopedics involved. I remember way back at St. Elsewhere, I do remember a case of exactly that, an older person who came in with a surgical neck fracture plus a dislocation, and the patient was sedated in the emergency department. They pulled on her shoulder. They couldn't get it back in. They tried again, and the post-reduction x-rays were far from reduction, just a much worsening of the of the fracture, and it ended up being quite a mess. So the bottom line there is surgical neck fracture plus glenohumeral dislocation should probably be done in the OR. Right. And specifically, though, if you see a, a greater tuberosity fracture or a bony bank hurt, we'll talk about these, a hill sacs, that does not preclude you from trying to reduce it. But it's specifically a surgical neck of the proximal humerus where you need to be careful. Good clarification. All right. Any other uh, sort of major pitfalls when it comes to anterior shoulder dislocations? The one thing I'd suggest that our, our surgeons, and Dale, you can confirm this, we sometimes don't take post-reduction films, and we really should. So we reduce it. We're convinced it's back in. A, for our sake, to prove that it's back in. B, sometimes they're so unstable, they may slip out in a week or two. I also know the case of, a, of an elderly lady uh, who had a dislocated shoulder that was uh, thought to be reduced clinically. Post-reduction was not done. She had similar pain for two weeks. And when she returned to the, the fracture clinic, her x-rays showed it was not in. So I think it's a good idea. As a general rule, not every single case, but almost every case, try to get pre and post if you can. All right. Yeah. I mean, I see a lot of practice variation there in terms of, let's say, the young guy playing sports who's dislocated his shoulder like 15 times. I've seen quite a few times where docs won't do any x-rays pre or post because they've done it a million times. It's unlikely that it's going to change anything. I want to dig a little bit deeper into exactly which patients need pre and post. So certainly the older patient who, especially if you're not sure, 100% sure that it's in or not, generally speaking, they all need pre and post. Are there any cases where you wouldn't need pre or post? Well, you described the, uh, the chronic dislocator. If that patient had never had an x-ray showing it out, I would say it would have some value having an x-ray that did so. Just because when it comes time to treatment, 
sometimes you just can't be sure, even with a clear history, if it ever truly was out. The first time dislocator, again, for the same reason. That may add value to their treatment later on. And then, yeah, as Aaron said, I mean, once it's in, I think you should take a picture of it in because it's your word against nothing if you don't have a picture that it's in. And you could end up in a situation like he described. Your example of the person who dislocated their shoulder 15 times, Anton, is is fine. As long as this 15th time when it went out, they're just putting their jacket on. If it happened in sports, fall, some other trauma, again, I think I'd still take an x-ray just to make sure there wasn't an associated fracture. If it was a traumatic injury, if this person for the 15th time is just reaching back to put in their jacket and they dislocate their shoulder and they, oh, Jesus, went out again, then you go and you reduce it and they go, yeah, it's back in. Thank you very much. That might be the exception of, of not doing it, but that is the exception. Otherwise, try to get in the habit of doing pre's and posts. Absolutely. We've talked a little bit about the Cunningham technique. There are literally dozens of different techniques described for anterior shoulder dislocation reductions, and they have varying success rates in the literature. Do you guys just have any tips and tricks in maximizing your chances of a successful reduction? Also taking into consideration flow of your department, like Dr. Ciel, what's your kind of go-to first-line reduction technique, depending on what kind of patient it is? How do you approach what kind of reduction technique you're going to use? So first line for me would be the Cunningham technique, but you need to know it well. You need to understand it. You need to believe it'll work in order for it to be successful. If you've heard of it, but you don't really understand it and you say, I'm just pulling his arm. I've seen a couple of videos. It doesn't work. There's a concept in knowledge translation, something called Kuba, K-U-B-A. You have to know it. You have to understand it. You have to believe it, and then you will act. If you just know it and you believe it, but you don't understand it, you won't know what to do when you get stuck. And I'll tell you, when I started, the first time I heard about it, I didn't believe it. Then I saw some videos and I heard some colleagues who had some success. And oh, I believed it. And then I didn't really understand it. So it didn't help me. I still wasn't having a great success with it. And then when I saw the video, and there's actually a video on YouTube, it's Neil Cunningham. I think it was the ISM, the International Congress of Emerging Medicine, 2012. It's a 37-minute video on the anterior shoulder dislocation. And it's beautiful. He talks about his technique, other techniques, when it works, when it doesn't work, what the different things you're achieving. I used to think that that arm in the antecubital area was a little bit of traction, a little bit of external rotation. He says, absolutely not. It's all positioning. It's all muscle relaxation. And now when I, when I attempt Cunningham, if it's not successful, I can break down where things aren't working. Oh, you know what? The position's not right. I don't know the elbow in the right position. The patient's not relaxed. Their scapula aren't back far enough. And I can try to adjust and I don't get frustrated. I just realize, okay, that maybe the patient can't relax or maybe it doesn't work. But I have a much better understanding of what I'm doing. So, so by all means, I, I encourage people to try Cunningham. It's, it's a wonderful technique because it encourages muscle relaxation. It's a gentle reduction technique. We're less likely to cause harm if we reduce it gently, but you need to understand it well. Couldn't have said it better myself because <laughs> I had the exact same experience um, that I went through where I was like, I don't know if this really works. I don't really believe that it works. And then, of course, once I actually started to understand it and do it multiple times, it works almost every time now. It's amazing. So let's say for whatever reason, the Cunningham technique fails. What's your kind of second line? You're absolutely right in saying there are so many different techniques. And I'll tell you, the vast majority of them work exceedingly well. We're not 
Like how often do we end up having to send a case to ortho because we couldn't reduce the shoulder? Not very often, number one. And number two, how often are we causing trauma, like actually fracturing proximal humeri? Not very often either. So whatever we're doing works. I like traction, counter-traction. Um, nice, gentle technique where someone is pulling in an opposite direction with a sheet that's wrapped around the axilla, uh, and I'm just pulling the arm out and very slowly putting traction and gently getting external rotation, and, and that tends to work. But there's a whole number of ones that are out there Stimson, Milch, Team, where it's traction, external rotation, abduction, medial rotation, um, Utah chair method, spasos, scapular manipulation, uh, you name it. There's a whole bunch. If, if you want a medical procedure named after you, you come up with your name, your way of trying to reduce the shoulder <laughs> dislocation. I, I think the, the, the one common thread in all of them has to be relaxation. If the muscles are tight, it doesn't matter what your technique is, it's not going to work. All right, that actually segues nicely into how to sedate these patients or whether an intraarticular injection of lidocaine, for example, is a good option. With these patients, for the Cunningham technique, you don't need anything, but for pretty much all the other ones, uh, you need some sort of analgesia or sedation or injection. I understand that the literature suggests that an injection of lidocaine into the joint has the same success rate as uh, full procedural sedation for anterior shoulder dislocations. What's your go-to if you do need to relax the patient? So what's the best way to relax a patient in well, your opinion? Yeah, so I've tried intra-articular lidocaine uh, probably a dozen years ago. I tried it in a few cases, so not a ton of them. I really found zero success. I think a lot of the spasm is is extra articular. It's muscle spasm, as Dale saying. It's important to get muscle relaxation. So I didn't find it helped very much at all. Now, so I, I don't use it. Uh, I have tried it a few times, and we typically then go to procedural sedation. Sometimes I've come across a situation when I'm doing sedation for other colleagues and in my patients as well. Patients are under sedation. I reduce the shoulder, the anterior shoulder dislocation, and I think it's in, but I'm not 100% sure it's in. And I certainly want to avoid having the patient wake up completely, send them for a post-reduction and find out that they're not in and then have to sedate them a second time. Do you have any tips or tricks about how to confirm that they're back in joint while they're still sedated? So one thing I think we don't do enough is actually examine the opposite side. So when the patient's asleep, check their opposite side, check the affected side, see the difference. Your hands will feel a difference. And then when it's back in, your hands will recognize that it's not, was not the same as it was when before you tried the, you started the procedure. But if you, if you don't do it, all you try to do is examine it afterwards. It's hard to notice the difference, number one. Number two, you can put it through a gent, like just check range of motion beforehand, check range of motion after. I don't know the validity or the sensitivity of the test, but they talk about if you can reach the opposite shoulder with it when it's back in, then it's probably okay. But I don't know if, you, if that's validated or not. If it's an anterior instability, it's not going to come out in inter- internal rotation. So in the internal 90 degrees of range of movement, you're perfectly safe to move it around. What I do, and maybe, you know, obviously I'm colored by the fact that, you know, I'm dealing with asleep patients often in a, in a sitting position, but I'll take my hand from above, put my thumb on the back of the acromion and a few fingers on the front of the humeral head as I'm rotating the arm. And there's a feel to it when it's in. And it's easy to check the opposite side doing the same thing if you're not sure. 
So that's a great little trick. So that that's a clinical assessment. And then there's always POCUS. If you've got it and you're, you're adept at using it, again, you know, do the normal side, see what it looks like, put it on the other side. It's From what I've been told, it's pretty easy. I'm not adept at MSK POCUS at all. But from those who are, they say it's it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, there are some YouTube videos, I think, that Academic Life and Emergency Medicine put up there of shoulder dislocations using POCUS and seeing whether it's in or out of joint. And uh, it does look relatively easy. I haven't used it myself, but that certainly is an option for the patient who's sedated. You can just quickly grab the ultrasound and compare it to the other side to see whether, whether it's actually in. All right, let's say you're convinced that the glenohumeral joint is back in place and you shoot your post-reduction X-ray. Dr. Dancer, what are the different fractures that we should look out for on the post-reduction film and what do they look like on X-ray and what's really the importance of them? And so, of course, I'm referring to the the Hill-Sachs deformity, uh, the Bankart lesion, and then the third one, which sometimes might occur, is the avulsion of the greater tuberosity. So. First of all, these are three fractures that you really need to kind of have a cognitive forcing strategy to look at on your post-reduction film, you know, rather than just looking that it's in in place or not. Can you just tell us a little bit about these three and what their significance are in the long run? Why don't I start with the greater tuberosity? So this is one where it's typically most displaced when the shoulder is dislocated. And in fact, your close reduction is what's likely going to reduce it. And often they line up extremely well and doesn't require any real change in management. If it were widely displaced, I worry more about it migrating proximally. If it is pulled by the rotator cuff tendons into the subacromial space, that's going to affect outcomes and may require surgical treatment. But in terms of in the emergency department, if you have a dislocated shoulder with a greater tuberosity fracture, you should reduce it. It's, you know, it shouldn't argue against what you otherwise would plan to do. I'll tackle hill sacks next. So I'm not sure that I've ever put the camera in a shoulder in a patient who has a history of a physician reduction and not seen a hill sacks lesion. So you can almost count on it being there. So it's not whether or not there is a hill sacks lesion that's important. It's really more about size, the magnitude. If it's clearly in a special category, then pay attention and yeah, it might influence your decision making. But the absence or presence of a Hillsax lesion doesn't really affect much of anything. All right. Could you just tell us actually where to look for it, what it looks like? And when you say a special category, what, what do you mean exactly? The best x-ray is the AP and external rotation. And then so what you're looking at is the profile at the supralateral aspect of the humeral head. You follow the contour of the humeral head, and if it just kind of seems to drop off, there's kind of a linear double shadow there. That's a Hillsax lesion. Now, it's not easy to quantify the size of a Hillsax lesion, but a very large one will really catch your attention. It looks like there's a large part of the head missing. Great. So that's the Hillsax lesion that you have on the external rotation view. If you can get it, pretty much every patient who's had a reduction will have a Hillsax lesion when you actually look in arthroscopy. But the ones that we care about are the ones where it looks like there's actually a piece of the of the humeral head missing. And what happens to those patients? Do they do they need surgery eventually? 
Most don't. So a really large, large heel sacs lesion, especially, you know, in an acute episode, tends to be in an elderly patient. The bone is a lot softer. And significant bony defects can actually contribute to ongoing instability and require surgical treatment. The nature of that treatment is a lot different in that age category. Sizable heel sacs lesions in younger patients are a really difficult problem. And so our typical treatments uh, start with soft tissue stabilization procedures. That can cause those not to be effective. It can lower the success rate. And the scale of the operation ramps up. So typically goes from uh, labor repair, uh, we can add some soft tissue work in the back called a remplissage procedure. And then ultimately there's a Latterge procedure, which is often done in very large hill sacs lesions. Suffice to say that most of the big hill sacs deformities you see will be in older patients. But if you see one in a young patient, you should probably be counseling that patient in the emergency department, look, you've got this lesion and it may require surgery, as opposed to most of the dislocations that, that aren't going to require surgery unless they're recurrent. Right. If you're seeing a huge heel sacs lesion in a younger patient, almost certainly it will be a recurrent problem. That's not, that won't have been their first dislocation. So we've talked about the heel sacs deformity. We've talked about the avulsion of the greater tuberosity. The last one to look for on your post-reduction x-ray for an anterior shoulder dislocation is the bony bankart, the bony bankart lesion. And that's the glenoid rim fracture. Can you tell us a little bit about where to actually look for this uh, bony bankart lesion, the glenoid rim fracture, and what its clinical significance is? So a bony bankart would be seen at the antero-inferior aspect of the glenoid, typically on the AP x-ray. And here, size matters. So a tiny little fragment may not affect surgical decision-making, but a sizable one often does. And the parameter we're most interested in is the anterior to posterior diameter of the glenoid. And if we're really worried, often we would need some kind of axial imaging in order to further characterize the size of that piece. Just to summarize all of that, when you do your post-reduction x-ray for an anterior shoulder dislocation, you're not just looking whether it's in place or not. You've got to look for three different fractures. The avulsion of the greater tuberosity, which you probably saw there before, is probably actually going to be improved. The hill sacs deformity, uh, which pretty much everyone has, but you might not be able to see it. If it's really big in a young patient, they actually might require surgery for that. And then the bony bankart lesion, which the teeny tiny ones aren't very significant, but a sizable bony bankart lesion will probably require surgery. A couple of points about the bony bankart as well that may help the the listeners understand this. It's relatively uncommon. It's probably about 5% of first-time dislocators. So it's not that common that you'll see it, number one. And, and the other way I've sometimes heard orthopedic surgeons describe it, the shoulder is like the golf ball on a tee. And if you imagine the tee is the glenoid, if you skive off a piece of it with a bony bank heart, it's harder to hold a golf ball on. So if we think about it that way, the fact that that, that piece is missing makes it more likely to be unstable and therefore more likely for it to be operative. So it's another way of imagining the joint, just thinking about it in some of these simple ways and then realizing, okay, well, if the greater tuberosity is off, that doesn't really affect things. If there's a hill sacs, there's not much what we do. There's not much that we do. But if there's a little piece off of the glenoid that's off the tee, it's much harder for the ball to stay on. Great analogy. 
One thing to add, just because we were talking earlier that the uh, greater tuberosity fracture is often easier to see on the dislocation view, and then it kind of improves its position often after it's been reduced. The bony bank art is often very difficult to see on the dislocation view. If you think about it, the humeral head is sitting right there in the front of the glenoid and obscures it. So it's much more commonly that you'll pick it up on the post-reduction x-ray. Great point. And, and why there's a small thing, the GT, the greater tuberosity fracture, way more common in the elderly. They got osteoporosis. They're more likely to have that fracture. Dude, I had that fracture. You calling me elderly? <laughs> <laughs> we'll edit that part out. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> We had mentioned external rotation immobilization for a posterior dislocation. And for the vast majority of patients with an anterior dislocation, we'll just put them in a sling or a, a shoulder immobilizer in a comfortable position with their forearm against their, their torso. But I do understand that there's some literature to suggest that putting these patients actually in an external immobilizer might be better. Dr. Dancer, could you tell us a little bit about this option of putting patients with an anterior shoulder dislocation who have been reduced in external rotation as we send them out from the emergency department? Is there any value in that or should we just be doing what most of us do and put them in a sling or shoulder mobilizer with their forearm against their torso? So, in fact, fundamentally what you're asking is that is there anything we can do in the first few weeks after a dislocation in the manner in which we immobilize that's going to affect the natural history of that shoulder. Uh, maybe help them avoid an operation, for instance. There's some Japanese work about immobilizing in neutral or slight external rotation um, that maybe showed some effect in that direction, but um, I'm not aware that that's ever been reproduced in North America. Certainly, I don't think that most of the patients I meet would tolerate being immobilized like that for this type of injury. They tend to feel pretty comfortable pretty quickly and wouldn't see that as valuable. In my experience, the thing that factors in most to the probability that someone is going to go on to have recurrent instability is their age. So this is one of the few areas in medicine where age isn't protective. It's the opposite. So the younger you are when you have the first dislocation, the more likely you are that it's going to continue to happen. A teenager, uh, which is a large proportion of the first-time dislocators that we'll see, can have as high as 60% or higher chance, probability, of having ongoing recurrent instability that would then often require surgical treatment. That starts to drop in each decade of life. Uh, over age 40, it drops below 5%, and it's pretty much a gradient in between. So I'm not a big believer that the manner of immobilization matters. I am a believer that the timing matters. So this is what we alluded to earlier, where you can actually use the tendency of the shoulder to become stiff a little bit to your advantage. So I like to see dislocators be deliberately immobilized for three weeks. And yes, I understand that that provokes an element of stiffness in the shoulder, but that's what you want when your issue is instability. And then you start from there. An older patient will get more stiff more quickly, but at the same time has less of a chance of having recurrent instability. 
The purpose of the physiotherapy in an older patient is to help them recover from that stiffness. In a younger patient, stiffness isn't much of an issue, and so the physiotherapy is more uh, helping them do the strengthening phase of their recovery in a safe, controlled manner. Okay, so I just want to clarify this. This is this is important. So for a patient with an anterior shoulder dislocation, if they're young, you actually want to keep them immobilized for two, three weeks to kind of stiffen up their shoulder a little bit, which kind of goes against most other shoulder injuries. So if you break your humerus, for example, you want to get early range of motion exercises is my understanding. All right, let's do a review of both posterior and anterior shoulder dislocations. We're going to start with the posterior. So the mechanism of injury of this relatively rare posterior shoulder dislocation, as opposed to the ABER of anterior shoulder dislocation, is most commonly an awkward fall with internal rotation of the shoulder plus minus some forward flexion. In addition, but less commonly, there's also the three E's electrical injury, epilepsy, and ethanol. Now, probably the most important clinical clue to diagnosing posterior shoulder dislocations is that the patient is locked in internal rotation. If you simply try to externally rotate the patient's forearm off their belly, it just won't go. And if you forget to try and put the patient through passive range of motion before the x-ray, the x-ray tech may send the patient back with a note that they couldn't do the external rotation view or they just send them back with a terrible view. The x-ray findings of posterior shoulder dislocation are very subtle. The classic light bulb sign is often seen only in retrospect. If you suspect a posterior shoulder dislocation, send the patient for an axillary view or bilateral axillary views if you aren't familiar with the axillary view. The axillary view will be way more obvious, and you might even see a reverse Hill-Sachs deformity. For reduction of posterior shoulder dislocations, try the Cunningham technique first, and if that doesn't work, try downward traction in the sitting position with a bit of external rotation, like you would for an anterior shoulder dislocation, with a second person from behind the patient pushing the humeral head anteriorly. If you're practicing solo and Cunningham fails, you can try Dr. Dancer's fist in the axilla lever technique. When it comes to immobilization of posterior shoulder dislocations, be sure to immobilize them in at least 10 degrees of external rotation. All right, let's talk about anterior shoulder dislocation pitfalls. Number one pitfall, make sure that you've ruled out a chronic dislocation in the elderly patient to avoid causing more damage by attempting to reduce it in the ED. Pitfall number two for anterior shoulder dislocations. Anterior shoulder dislocation in conjunction with a surgical neck fracture of the humerus should also not be reduced in the ED. Call ortho for consideration of reduction in the OR. Third pitfall for anterior shoulder dislocations, your default should be to do pre- and post-reduction films for anterior shoulder dislocations because you can miss a significant bony Bankart lesion or a big Hill-Sachs deformity that may require surgery. The exception is the young, frequent dislocator who's had multiple x-rays for the same injury with a benign mechanism of injury like putting on a jacket. They're pretty much the only ones who don't need a pre- and post-reduction films. 
Let's talk reduction techniques. First line reduction technique for anterior shoulder dislocations, according to our experts, is the Cunningham technique, but you need to know it, understand it, and believe it. Check Neil Cunningham's video that we'll have in the show notes. If Cunningham fails, there are a multitude of reduction techniques with about equal efficacy, so choose the one that you're most familiar with, but be sure that the patient has adequate sedation and relaxation. Now, while lidocaine injections into the joint have been shown in the literature to be as good as procedural sedation, our experts believe that the muscle relaxation can't be adequately done with a lidocaine injection, and so their go-to is procedural sedation if the Cunningham technique fails. If your patient is sedated and you're not sure your reduction worked, check the opposite side and put both shoulders through a bit of gentle external rotation while your hand is enveloping the shoulder joint, and it should feel similar. You can also confirm relocation with POCUS. Another pitfall in the management of anterior shoulder dislocations is to skim over the post-reduction film. You need to look for both a bony Bankart lesion, that's the glenoid rim fracture, and the big hill sacs deformity, which is best seen on the external rotation AP view. The reason is because the big hill sacs deformity may require surgery. Now, when it comes to greater tuberosity fractures associated with shoulder dislocations, reducing the dislocation usually improves the position of the greater tuberosity fracture on the post-reduction film. Finally, when it comes to how long to immobilize patients with shoulder dislocations, as opposed to most shoulder fractures, which usually require early range of motion exercises as early as one week, especially in the elderly, and that's to prevent frozen shoulder or chronic stiffness, for glenohumeral dislocations, you actually want to take advantage of the stiffness that develops to help stabilize that joint. And so a general rule is to immobilize patients with glenohumeral dislocations for three weeks. Well, that about wraps up part one of our shoulder injury series. In part two, we're going to go through the entire differential diagnosis of the patient who presents with the shoulder injury with a normal x-ray. And we'll talk about fractures and all kinds of other goodies. So until next time, take it easy. Take it easy.